As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, remember your word to your servants in which you have made us hope. This is our comfort and our affliction that your promise gives us life. Your words have been our songs in the house of our sojourning. By your spirit and your word, please show us Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6, at verse 30. If you're visiting with us today, we've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 6, verse 30. Uh, chapter 6, verse 30, the well-known story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 from Mark's gospel. And so Mark chapter 6, you'll find that on page 1070 of many of the Pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 6, beginning our reading at verse 30 and reading through verse 44. And let us pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd." And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard a sermon on Jesus feeding the five thousand. That's a well-known story. We've heard sermons on it. If you've been in the church for any length of time, because all four gospel writers record this, this miracle that Jesus performed, they include the miracle with all the pertinent details. And maybe as I read the story, you already knew what all the details were, that there would be five loaves and there would be two fish and there would be 5,000 people to feed and that it was 200 denarii's worth of food that even if you don't know how much a denarii is worth, um, you knew it was that much amount of food that they needed to find. All of those details are familiar to us because they're recorded by all of the writers, and it's probably because this was such a remarkable story that everybody remembered it in detail. Um, How much food, how many people, how this story unfolded. And so maybe it's very familiar in its details to many of us, 
Um, But do we really understand the significance of what Jesus is doing here? Uh, It's more than just a nice story to think about, Uh, more than just Jesus providing food. There's something remarkable going on here. Uh, There's a great significance that Jesus is doing this event, and as Mark records it, to highlight the glorious truths about the kingdom of God. Uh, The glorious truths that we have presented to us here about what kind of kingdom is coming. That Jesus has come to fulfill all of those promises that were made to his people in the Old Testament. That Jesus has come to bring the kingdom with all of its fullness that was hoped for. Uh, There's much more going on here than a simple miracle. This event, as Mark records it, is telling us a lot about what Jesus has come to do. How God has sent him to bring his people into the rest of the kingdom of God. And so how does Mark show us this in this passage? Uh, What do we see in particular as these things are highlighted for us? Well, first, Mark brings our attention to the fact that this is a new exodus. That's one of the things Mark is communicating by the power of the Holy Spirit to us. This represents a new exodus. Christ is also the needed shepherd. Uh, We read that as well. Christ is the needed shepherd. And we're left with this wonderful picture of the nourished people. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. The new exodus, the needed shepherd, and the nourished people. Our passage begins with the 12 disciples returning from their mission to proclaim the kingdom of God in word and deed. They come back to give a report. Mark calls them apostles here. Uh, Because that's what they were sent out to do, to proclaim the word of God. And so these apostles who were sent out, boys and girls, that's what apostle simply means, someone who's sent out on a mission. You might remember that Jesus sent out these disciples to proclaim the word of the kingdom, to drive out demons, to heal the sick. And they've been going around and doing that, and they are now coming back to report to him all that they had said and done. And so this begins with this report, this great gathering back of the people. And after Jesus receives this report, what does he say? He tells the disciples to come with him to a place where they can find rest. Uh, Jesus says to the disciples, "You've, you've done all this labor on behalf of the kingdom. Let's withdraw to a place where you can find rest. Some of the impact of their mission is seen in the fact that there's a, there's a chaotic scene of people coming and going to the gospel, right? That one of the reasons they need to withdraw to a place they can be in private for rest because so many people are coming and going um, that there's not leisure for them even to sit down to have something to eat. Uh, they have to go find a place to rest. And so Jesus says, come, let's go to a desolate place and rest. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, or maybe as we read, you were just waiting for the great miracle of the feeding, so we weren't paying attention to the details as they went along, but that sounds like a strange thing to say, right? If you look for a vacation spot, you're probably not looking for desolate places to go on vacation. Maybe some of you do, I don't know, but I don't look for desolate places to go. Uh, It might seem a strange thing that Jesus says, desolate place, but we're clearly meant to take note of this. Jesus says, let us withdraw to a desolate place and rest. And then Mark it says in his narration in verse 32, then they withdrew to a desolate place. And when the disciples see that it's almost time for dinner, they say to Jesus, this is a desolate place. 
desolate place, desolate place, desolate place. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. When he repeats something, it's for a purpose. Why does the Lord want us to think about the fact that this is a desolate place that they go to rest? Well, we've seen this before in the book of Mark. This word for desolate is a word that's been translated elsewhere as wilderness. It was the same word that we saw repeatedly in chapter 1. When John the Baptist was a voice crying in the wilderness. And baptizing in the wilderness. And Jesus was driven in the wilderness. And was in the wilderness. It's the same word that appears here. Later in the story, Jesus withdraws to a desolate place, a wilderness place to pray. And by the end of chapter 1, they're so inundated with crowds that they have to withdraw to desolate places, to wilderness places, because they can't even enter the towns. And so now what does Jesus do? That We're, we're returning to this idea that we've seen before of a, a wilderness place, a desolate place. But now Jesus says, come to the desolate place that you may find rest. This is the first time that the twelve are called to come with him to this place to rest. To find rest in the desolate place. To find rest in the wilderness place. And so what is Jesus doing by this? Saying, come follow me to the wilderness place that you might find rest. He's painting for us a vivid picture of a new exodus. Who do these 12 represent? When we talked about Jesus choosing 12 and sending out 12, why these people? What was Jesus picturing for us? And we said at that time that the 12 disciples represent in a new form the people of the 12 tribes of Israel. That they represent the new Israel that Jesus came to create, which is the structure and goal of redemptive history. And so it's not just these 12 guys being called out into the wilderness. It's these 12 men that represent the new Israel of God being called out into the wilderness by their God. It's a picture of a new exodus. That Jesus is leading this new Israel out into the wilderness. Then they might find rest. The 12 in the wilderness. That's the theme that the Holy Spirit is bringing to our minds. And what kind of experience was that for Israel in the wilderness? I was very much helped by the Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner in thinking about what the wilderness represents to us. So any insights in this section of the sermon are probably his um, to give credit where credit is due. But he said, when, you know, when we think about Exodus, what does that bring to mind? The first thing sometimes it brings to mind is the life of God's people in ruins, The people that went out into the wilderness and even though they saw the miracles and they ate the bread from heaven and drank the water from the rock, they were the people that tested him so that he swore an oath to them in his anger that they would never enter his rest. That the exodus of the 12 tribes speaks to us of life in ruins. The people who, because of their unbelief and because of their sin, died in the wilderness, failed to enter into rest. And that certainly is something of the theme of Exodus. But you know, the Old Testament also says there's another thing that the Bible reminds us was true of the Exodus. 
Not just the life of God's pilgrim people in ruins. Not just the pilgrim punishment was seen in the wilderness. But in the early days, there was a definite sign of pilgrim progress. That in the early days of the Exodus, there was a true pilgrim spirit and youthful promise that the people showed. The Holy Spirit talks about this through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2, 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. That, that part of their journey, really, from the Exodus, leaving Egypt to Sinai, where there wasn't the apostasy, and there wasn't the rebellion, and there wasn't the same kind of grumbling and testing that would come later. There was that time that seemed to show so much promise, where they followed their God, and they were with Him in the wilderness, following Him faithfully. Now, that promise was short-lived. Um, And what began so well quickly devolved into ruin. But one of the things the prophets held out by way of hope to the people of God was that God could lead the people out again on a new exodus where they would make a new beginning and that good, youthful promise would be recaptured and would be fulfilled. It wouldn't be spoiled as it was in the first exodus, but it would come to fulfillment The Lord would bring them out and bring them on. We saw that when we went through Hosea with Reverend Cortez in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where God said, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. What did the prophets hold out the hope of? That there could be a new exodus. That the Lord could lead his people out into the wilderness and that youthful promise would not be spoiled. That life with God would not end in ruins. He would do a new work. He would bring them out into the wilderness and they would find rest. Those days of youthful promise would be recaptured and would find their fulfillment. And that's what Mark is trying to drive home by the power of the Spirit here. This is the new exodus that the Lord Jesus is leading them on. And when he leads you out, you find rest. Life doesn't end in ruins when Christ goes with us. There's a new exodus he is leading where the people of God will find rest. Even in the wilderness, they will find rest with their God. You see the wonderful thing that Mark is doing in showing us this new exodus that the Lord is leading them on. That is meant to put our minds in a whole frame to hear the rest of what happens in this story. That's the theme that's introduced. Now, the rest here is very short-lived, right? Because no sooner do they begin their journey for rest, they're still inundated by the crowds. There's this image of them going in the boat to go and find the place and people seeing them from the boat, recognizing who they are. That's testimony to how much work has been done in the mission of Jesus. And they see Jesus and his disciples and they start running after the boat. And by the time they get to the place of rest, People are already there. 
The other gospel writers tell us that maybe there was some time before the full magnitude of the crowd piled in and ruined the rest. But as Mark tells it, just as Jesus steps off the boat, the, the people are already gathered there. And that's when this Old Testament theme is continued, and we move from this idea of the new exodus to the needed shepherd. Because as Jesus is disembarking and he sees this crowd gathering, what does, he, what does it move him to think? How does Mark capture the reality of that situation? We'll look at verse 34. When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Just as that idea of rest in the wilderness should have brought everyone to think of those Old Testament themes of Exodus, so also sheep without a shepherd should bring a host of imagery from the Old Testament. Also from the Exodus. Because Moses, at the end of his life, realizing his life and his ministry were coming to an end, prayed for the next generation of leaders that would be raised up after him. Recognizing that his ministry was coming to an end, this is what Moses prayed in Numbers chapter 27, or chapter 27, verses 15 through 17. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Right? That was his concern. They need someone who's going to lead them out and bring them back in, who will watch over them, and I'm, I'm not going to be around forever. And I want to make sure that when I'm gone, the people are not left as sheep without a shepherd. Lord, raise up a shepherd for the sheep. And the Lord answered that prayer, didn't he? And he raised up a shepherd for the sheep. And he promised Moses that there would be a shepherd to lead the people out and to lead them in and to watch over them. And who was that shepherd? It was Joshua. Numbers 27, 21, we said, at his, the Lord promised Moses at his word, at Joshua's word, they shall go out. And at his word, they shall come in both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. The Lord said to Moses, the sheep will not be without a shepherd because I will raise up Joshua to shepherd the sheep. Joshua will shepherd the sheep. Joshua will bring the people into their rest. When Joshua had gone out as a spy, Moses changed his name. Uh, he changed his name to Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Do you know what Joshua is in Greek? It's Jesus. Who is the great shepherd of the sheep that will come and lead the people in and out? Who will bring the people to the rest? The Lord who saves his people from their sins. It's Jesus. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the shepherd that will lead his people into rest. He is the shepherd his people need. And the fear that Moses expressed that the people would be like sheep without a shepherd was also the reality that the Old Testament considered in light of the exile. Many years later, when God's people had gone into exile, a God had spoken by the prophet Ezekiel against 
the shepherds. So there's an exodus idea with this shepherding metaphor, but also one from the exile. Because the Lord had come and had pronounced through Ezekiel against the shepherds of Israel and said, you know, you have been faithless shepherds. You have not shepherded the flock. And what's been the result? They've been scattered as a sheep with no shepherd. Right? The very thing that Moses feared would happen, the Lord says, has happened because the faithless shepherds have not done their work. And so God brings not only that message of judgment through Ezekiel, but he also brings a message of hope. That he would raise up a shepherd who would gather the scattered flock of his people. The wonderful promise that the Lord communicates through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34, 22 to 24, he says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. Now, this was hundreds of years after King David had died. So the David Ezekiel is talking about is not the first King David. Who is the David he's talking about? He's talking about great David's greater son, the Messiah, the Christ who would come to be God's shepherd of the people. And so to say Jesus looked and had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd is to bring with full force this notion that Jesus is the Joshua who has come to lead his people to rest. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ who has been raised up to be the shepherd of the sheep. To lead his people, to to do what his people need, to care for his people. And what does the shepherd particularly do for his people? What will David particularly do for his people? He will feed them. And so it's really no surprise that after Jesus shows this compassion to be a shepherd to the sheep, he proceeds to feed them. And that we find them being a nourished people by the work of the great shepherd. Um, Jesus comes and he feeds them. You might be saying, okay, finally, we're getting to the miracle. That's what I've sort of been waiting for. Not quite yet. Because wait, there's more. How does Jesus feed them first? Notice what Jesus does as he comes to the people. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. What does the good shepherd know his people need? He's showing the truth of what he will say later, that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He feeds them first with the words from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord, as a good shepherd, knows that we have two kinds of life that need feeding. We have a physical life that needs feeding. We also have a spiritual life that needs feeding. And only he can feed our souls with himself, who is the true word of God, the bread of life. That's what he does first. He nourishes their souls unto eternal life. And then he nourishes their bodies. The Lord is concerned about both kinds of our lives. So if you've been waiting for it, we're finally here to the miracle. 
to the physical food. Right? And the occasion for it is the time for the, for the big meal of the day has come. Um, the time where people would eat their big meal and the disciples look around and say, this is a desolate place. Where are all these people going to find dinner? And so they say, you know, Jesus, the only real thing to do is to send them away to find food. So send them away that they can go around to the villages and find something to eat. Send them away. That's what the disciples say to him. And you notice how Jesus responds? You feed them. You feed them. And they sort of react as we might react if somebody told us, hey, could you go feed that group of 5,000 people real quick? Right? Imagine I said to one of you, hey, there's 5,000 people that need in and out Could you run over to in and out and get in and out for 5,000 people? You would say, well, I'm not sure in and out has 5,000 double-doubles to give out even if I go, and I don't have fifty to $60,000 worth of in and out to pay for. That's kind of what the, what, the, what the disciples are saying to Jesus. Oh, sure, we'll take our $50,000 over to in and out and do that. Jesus, what are you asking us to do? You feed them? We can't feed them. We don't have enough money to feed them. Now, Jesus is going to feed them, right? So why does Jesus do this? Why, why this interchange? Because he's teaching the disciples something very important about their future ministry in the kingdom of God. And what is the thing that he's teaching them? Well, the first thing he's teaching them is you cannot say to the flock, go feed yourselves. You cannot send the flock away to feed themselves. That if you're going to be shepherds under me in my kingdom, you have to feed the sheep. You can't tell the sheep to go off and be fed. It's a reminder to us that we cannot feed ourselves. Pastors need to remember this. Congregation members need to remember this. We can, none of us, feed ourselves. There's no such thing as self-feeding. We need to be fed by the word of God. By his word preached, that's how he primarily feeds his people. That's why it's so important for us to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day to hear the word preached. Because if we aren't fed by that, we cannot make up for that ourselves someplace else. It's something that pastors have to think seriously about if they're going to come up in the pulpit and proclaim the word of God. You seminarians have to think about that. The people cannot go feed themselves somewhere else. If you don't do your work in the pulpit well as unto the Lord, that can't be supplemented elsewhere. We cannot feed ourselves. We must be fed. The Lord is teaching his disciples, you cannot have that attitude. Go feed yourself. And he wants them also to understand, you cannot say go feed yourself, but you also don't have the power in yourself to feed them. He wants them to feel that that tension. They need to be fed, but I don't have what it takes to feed them. Right? If, if I thought your being fed depended on me, I would never come up here and do this again. I only do this because I know the Lord needs you to be fed and that the Lord will provide what's necessary. Jesus wants his disciples to realize we can't do that. They need to be fed, we need to feed them, and we can't. How are we going to do that? 
And Jesus wants them to understand the Lord will provide. What we cannot do, the Lord can do. I love how one commentator put this as they think about their own inability and Christ's ability. He said, Jesus is one who is not bound by the rules of normal experience of what is possible and impossible. In following him, this representative group of Israelites, no less than those who followed Moses in the wilderness, will find all their needs supernaturally supplied, for God is again at work among his people. You can feed them, because even though you can't do it, the Lord can, and the Lord gets to work. How much food do you have? Bring it here. We've got five loaves and two fish. That's not enough for them to have dinner, much less everyone else to have dinner. And what does Jesus do? He does what would ordinarily be done at a meal. Not usually a meal of 5,000, but he organizes everybody in groups. And then he, he treats it almost like he would have if he had just had his disciples around the dinner table. This is all meant to be a very ordinary way of serving the meal. It was very common for them to pray before and after meals. And the prayer for the meal was very simple. The host would ask for a blessing in the name of the Lord. He's not blessing the food. He's blessing the name of the Lord who provides the food. The normal prayer for meal went something like this. Blessings unto you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes the bread come forth from the earth. And the whole then table would say, Amen. And you would break the bread and, and serve it out. You bless the Lord's name for providing what's on the table, then you break it and distribute it. Everything Jesus does here is ordinary at a meal. The only extraordinary thing he does, instead of bowing his head, as they would have done in prayer, he lifts his eyes to heaven. And why does he do that? Because he's not just blessing the provision that's been given, he's asking his Father to provide what's needed. And what does his Father do? He provides it in abundance. From these five loaves and two fish, enough food is handed out that everybody can eat their fill and that there's 12 baskets of stuff left over when they're done. What is the, what is the Lord teaching his disciples? We'd love if Mark would tell us the details of how that happened. How did this food become so multiplied? He doesn't tell us any of the how it happened. He just tells us what resulted. Everybody who got food ate until they were satisfied. They all ate their fill. And when 5,000 people had eaten their fill, there was still 12 baskets of food left over. What are the disciples being reminded? The Lord can supply all our needs and more besides. There's no lack of supply when Jesus is at work. Our Heavenly Father has the power to supply all that is needed for our bodies as well as for our souls through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we shouldn't expect God to multiply bread this way all the time. But every time we have daily bread that's given to us, it's a reminder to us that our God has provided, has provided us sufficient food for our needs. It's a reminder of another thing Jesus said elsewhere, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
The shepherd has come to nourish his people. He does that through his servants, but he makes sure that his servants lack nothing. Nothing that we need for our bodies, nothing that we need for our souls. All of it is supplied to us by our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, who is our faithful shepherd. And because the Lord Jesus is our shepherd, we shall not want. We will be provided for everything we need for both body and soul until we come to rest. That he can set a table in the wilderness and provide rest to his people now. And he promises to lead us to that heavenly rest that's coming when he returns in glory. What a wonderful thing it is to have Jesus as our good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. Thanks be to God for him and for his provision for us. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this miracle that speaks to us so powerfully of your provision for your people. That our Lord Jesus Christ has come to lead your people into rest. And we know that this will not end badly as the first exodus did, but because he is with us and at our head, we will be assured that by his person and work, we will be led to the heavenly rest that awaits your people. And how thankful we are to that as pilgrims passing through the wilderness of this world, we know that our Lord can provide us rest even here in the wilderness. And how thankful we are for his provision. That you, through him, provide us all that we need for body and for soul. And that you are a father who cares about both. And so when we are reminded of our, reminded of our limitations of how little we have to do what's required In service to you, may we be reminded of the great supply that is ours in Christ, that the things that seem impossible for us are easy for him. And may we, with uplifted eyes, look to him for all things and know that in him, our good shepherd, we will certainly have what we need to live and to rest. We thank you for him. And hear us, we pray in his name.